Welcome to Let's Talk New Mexico. I'm Megan Kamrick, News Director for KUNM. The legislative session is in full swing and revenues are at record highs. That's largely due to oil and gas development, but regulating those industries is also a big part of this 30-day session. There are a number of key bills in the legislature right now that could mean big changes for oil and gas. Those include pushes for higher royalty payments, increased fines, and higher bonding rates to address the state being on the hook for millions of dollars to shut down orphan wells. Also, Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham is seeking legislation and regulatory changes that would allow the state to finance development of a strategic new source of water by buying and selling treated water that comes from oil and gas drilling or saline aquifers. The biggest bill, the Oil and Gas Act, is actually being heard this morning in the House Energy, Environment and Natural Resources Committee. So after you listen to our show, you can jump online and stream that hearing at the legislature's website. What do you want lawmakers to do this session around oil and gas? Call 505-277-5866 or email Let's Talk at KUNM.org. I'm joined right now on Zoom by journalist Jerry Redfern. He covers oil and gas in New Mexico for the online publication Capital in Maine. Thanks for being here, Jerry. Hey, Megan. Thanks for having me on. Jerry, give us a quick overview of the biggest legislative initiatives in the session right now. There are so many, I'm not sure that there's a quick overview that okay. can be done, but I'll, I'll try to I'll try to rush through the list. Um, there's there's just so much going on, and a bunch of it has changed in the past week. Um, Representative Deborah Sarignana had a trio of bills to clamp down on loose operations. One would have eliminated the use of fresh water in oil and gas operations. Another would have imposed mandatory fines for produced water and chemical spills. A third would have created child health protection zones that prohibit prohibit new operations within a mile of school facilities. Um, so you might guess from the past tense, all of those are now dead. None of those received a message from Governor Lujan Grisham allowing them to be debated this session. Um, it's it's a it's a funny process that happened there. Um, Danny Prokop and Pat Lohman over at Source New Mexico had a really good story about how that whole process works. And I really recommend people go see that to understand how stuff like that works in the legislature. Um, before those three died, they did appear to sort of overlap with the governor's own Oil and Gas Act update which is sponsored by uh, representatives Christina Ortez and Matthew McQueen. Um, that bill has been hotly debated and changed since it first appeared a little over a week ago. As of an update I saw last night, it would increase civil penalties for rules violations pretty dramatically. It would increase permitted permitting fees across the board. It increases bonding requirements. Um, that, that gets back to talking about paying for plugging uh, abandoned oil and gas wells. We could probably talk about that later. Um, it, it tightens transfer rules to keep financially unstable or historically bad actors from being able to buy wells in the future. Um, another important portion of the bill um, would lock in the state's 98% gas capture rate. Um, that was implemented a couple of years ago. It was a big deal, I think, for the governor and her administration. Um, it's only implemented now as a departmental rule. This would actually put that into law. Uh, but the version I saw last night added several loopholes to that. And I think that might be a problem for several environmental groups out there, whether or not they're going to back that. Um, already gone from that bill are setbacks from home schools and public facilities uh, for new oil and gas operations. There was also originally a ban on the use of fresh water in those operations. That's also no longer in the bill. Um, 
a quick one, fifth one, uh, that's that, as you brought up, it's a bill again from Representative McQueen that raises royalty rates on oil and gas produced on state lands from 20 to 25%. That's already passed its first hearing. So it's like the one bill here that's actually quickly moved forward. Um, and I would say actually the last really big oil and gas bill is the budget itself, because that's where legislators decide how much they're going to give the Oil Conservation Division and the Environment Department to actually go forward and police the industry and how it operates. Um, just to put a little bit of context there, oil production has risen about sevenfold in the past decade here in New Mexico, and the two agencies' budgets have risen uh, at the same time, but absolutely nowhere near the same amount, nowhere near the same pace of industry, and uh, nowhere near at the same pace of tasks that they've been given to keep track of what's going on in that industry. So. Um, this year, the legislative committee in charge of that budget did offer increases to both the Environment Department and Oil and Conservation Division. Those increases are both just a little bit above the cost of inflation. Um, in the end, what the legislature ends up doing there is anybody's guess. Um, but truth be told, legislators usually hew pretty closely to what that legislative finance committee recommends in the first place. Um, so and the last thing, as you brought up earlier, too, is the strategic uh, water supply thing that uh, the governor's brought up. I don't have a whole lot to say about that because a lot of that's still truly up in the air and we're still waiting to hear more clearly out of the governor's office on what the plans are, where she hopes to get the money, how that's all supposed to work. So, phew, that's that's, that's a lot. basic list. Wow, yeah. and this is just a 30-day session. <laughs> right, exactly. Thank, thank you, Jerry Redfern with Capital in Maine. Well, luckily, joining us this morning is New Mexico Environment Secretary James Kenney. He is on Zoom, and I I know we only have you for the first part of the show. Much of the legislation this session around oil and gas is under the purview of the New Mexico Energy, Minerals and Natural Resources Department and the Oil Conservation Division. We'll have an interview later this hour with MNERD's Assistant Secretary, but your department is involved in this proposal by the governor to treat and sell fracking wastewater. Tell us how that would work, Secretary. Yeah, good morning, Megan, and good morning to your listeners as well. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. So the the governor's priorities for the 30-day session, you know, beyond the strategic water supply, focusing on, um, you know, everything from housing and homeless, healthcare, behavioral health, education, um, infrastructure, tax reform. And part of that initiative or part of the initiative here that we're talking about, the strategic water supply, is one of those environmental and economic development initiatives. And the reason I say it that way is because we are focused on um, offsetting the use of fresh water in the state of New Mexico while we continue to develop our jobs and economy here all across the state, not just in Santa Fe, Albuquerque, but all of, you know throughout the rural parts of the state as well. Um, and the way this would work is that uh, you, you mentioned oil and gas wastewater, fracking wastewater, as you called it, but really what we're focused on is a much more expansive concept where we look at the saline aquifers, the brackish water that are sort of outside of, uh, of allocation, they're not used currently, um, and that produced water that, we're, that you mentioned, we're looking at that as well to um, have industry front the money to treat those sources of water and then the state would purchase that treated water for non-discharge uses. So things like green hydrogen, things like uh, you know chip manufacturing or solar panel manufacturing, 
think of it as things that the Inflation Reduction Act is now onshoring domestically in the United States are heavy water consumptive industries. And those could be even battery manufacturing for EV vehicles, which is a big priority for our administration as well to continue that EV um, switch uh, in, in New Mexico. So um, the strategic water supply, again, simply saving fresh water for its highest and most valued use, which is community drinking water. Secondly, finding ways to that utilize under-resourced brackish water or wastewater from oil and gas, use it for those industries so we can continue to grow the economy. Uh, and the funding source, the governor has been very clear about this, is that it would come from the severance uh, dollars that the extractive industries in New Mexico are paying into the, the state. And then we would use those funds through bond issuance to uh, secure the money to purchase the treated water. So I said a mouthful. So let you me, did. Uh, that let was me a lot. There. That was a lot. So I know your department's also proposing a new regulatory framework for reusing oil industry wastewater and desalination of this brine water you mentioned. It, this is related. Is this related to this proposal? Well, I, here's how I like to think of it. It's related, but not directly related. Here's how I like to think of it: is we propose uh, reuse reg to the water quality. Um, body that adopts the regulations that basically takes the environment department's rules and makes them uh you know puts them in into effect so that hearing is going forward i believe in may so we will have a regulatory framework with you know permits and enforcement authority so that's the stick part of what i'm talking about the strategic water supply is layered on top of that if you will so that we have uh, a means to have an incentive to look at those underutilized or wasted resources in the state and put them to a higher use than they're currently being used for. But by no means are we doing an incentive without a regulatory sort of backstop. What role would this idea play in hydrogen production? I know that's something the governor has been pursuing here. Yeah, so, you know, we don't get to net zero in New Mexico without something like hydrogen coming into play. You can't electrify everything to the point that uh, high consumptive and intermittent use industries can be, you know, can be electrified. So hydrogen is going to have to play a role. Uh, there are different colors of hydrogen, but basically green hydrogen is you take uh, things like treated brackish water, treated produced water, and through wind and solar sort of energy, you go ahead and uh, break that water into hydrogen and oxygen. So green hydrogen is derived from water it would be wrong for New Mexicans to use their drinking water for that purpose. So if we're going to use any hydrogen in New Mexico uh, that sources from water, we should be sourcing it, that water from a commodity, you know, something like brackish water or treated produced water. Also joining us, everyone's on Zoom this morning, so I'll just say that. Also joining us is Eric Schlenker-Goodrich. He's executive director of the Western Environmental Law Center. Eric, you are skeptical of this water plan. Why? I think we have more questions and answers at this point, in particular with the strategic water supply. The, the the concept has not been well vetted with the public. I'm aware that Secretary Kenny and the governor made that announcement first uh, in Dubai at the climate summit, uh, but we really don't have any sense of what kind of guardrails are going to be put on the strategic water supply. There is a deep concern in the climate environmental community and in frontline communities that the strategic water supply is really a backdoor 
source subsidy for the oil and gas industry. And given its relationship to hydrogen, which yes, there is green hydrogen, and there are concerns, of course, about freshwater use for green hydrogen. But generally speaking, that is the best form of hydrogen. That said, the vast majority of hydrogen production globally is with fossil gas hydrogen, and that has animated very much the debate in New Mexico, where using the natural gas feedstock to prop up a fossil gas hydrogen industry. It's not clear to us, given all of the profits that oil and gas companies are making, why we should effectively be subsidizing the oil and gas industry even further. And because we don't have many answers on the guardrails on how this strategic water supply will in fact be used, that's of deep concern. And, and I would say relatedly, the governor also announced that she wanted to use 2% of the severance tax permanent fund. And just to step back, my understanding of the strategic water supply is that it would take severance taxes before they actually are put into the severance tax permanent fund. But then on top of that, that the governor wants to allocate 2% of the severance tax permanent fund, which is around $8 billion, and then invest that in certain advanced energy technologies, which which some of that is good. We like that, for example, energy storage and renewables, but much of it is also towards hydrogen. So there may be two different funding streams that may flow to the oil and gas industry. And that's a deep problem and concern for us. So I think right now with the strategic water supply, it seems frankly and candidly a bit half-baked and that further work is gonna have to go into comforting the climate and environmental community if we can be comforted that this is actually a legitimate use of public money, a prudent use of public money. Last thing I'll say on this is, especially with the severance tax permanent fund, we should be really careful about this. You know, the Legislative Finance Council has explained that this is a rising source of recurring revenue for New Mexico, and in fact, the most stable source of recurring revenue for the state of New Mexico. And that's gonna be key as oil and gas production inevitably declines. With every boom in oil and gas, and we're witnessing one now, there comes a bust. So we really have to be thinking about the long-term. I think Secretary Kenny is thinking about the long-term on that front. I do appreciate that, but I think the investments we make have to be prudent. And that means that we have to have good guardrails around governance, accessibility to information and transparency of how decisions are made. And then also those substantive guardrails to make sure that we're not actually propping up fossil fuels were transitioning from fossil fuels. Um, Secretary Kenny, we need to go to break, but uh, can you uh, give us a quick response to some of Eric's concerns? Yeah, I think uh, Eric raises a lot of good questions, and many of which we plan to answer not only through the request for information process, which is the scoping part that we're in now of the strategic water supply um, but as we go forward, we're also uh, holding some stakeholder meetings as well, which we scheduled for, I believe, February. So more to come. And uh, yeah, we'll we'll pick it up after the break, I suppose. OK, uh, this is Let's Talk New Mexico on 89.9 KUNM. I'm Megan Kamrick. We're talking about legislation around oil and gas in this current legislative session um, and related to oil and gas. What do you want to see come out of this session regarding this industry? Call 505-277-5866. We'll be back in a moment. Support comes from James Crenshaw Public Relations. Specializing in strategic communications and reputation brand management, JKPR helps local, national, and international companies navigate through changing business climates. More at jamescrenshaw.com. 
KUNM has been a radio pioneer for over 57 years. Today, listener support is our largest source of funding. As a donor, you can be proud of the history you've created. Thanks to you, KUNM's future includes more in-depth news, world-class music, and great discussions. Continue the spirit of innovation. Make your year-end gift now at KUNM.org. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Bob Thurman, author of Man of Peace. I'm here next time talking about loving your enemies and how the Dalai Lama can inspire joyous resistance to negativity in society. Saturday mornings at 6 on KUNM. Welcome back to Let's Talk New Mexico. I'm Megan Kamrick. We're talking about legislation to regulate oil and gas in this legislative session. A key reform bill, the Oil and Gas Act, is being heard right now in the House Energy, Environment, and Natural Resources Committee. It starts at 8.30, actually. Um, We get a lot of money from oil and gas for government and education. Is it worth the cost? You can give us a call, 505-277-5866, or email letstalk at kunm.org. Just before the break, we were talking about sort of an adjacent um, issue in the legislature around the strategic water supply. Uh, We were talking with Environment Secretary James Kenney, who presented on this this week at the legislative session. It's a priority of the governor, and some concerns raised by Eric Schlenker Goodrich from the Western Environmental Law Center. Um, Secretary Kenny, um, we you were responding to Eric's concerns before the break. Also, Senator George Munoz, chair of the powerful Legislative Finance Committee, said during a Senate hearing he won't support this as it now stands. What chances do you think you have in the session right now? Yeah, Megan, um, just following up uh, from before the break, and I'll, I'll certainly address okay. your question, the Senate Finance uh, committee, you know, I, I would I, I somewhat take issue with the notion that we're subsidizing the oil and gas industry by using severance tax dollars. Um, you know, I think what we are doing, the way I, I look at it, is that those severance tax dollars that come from the extractive industries in New Mexico, largely oil and gas, but not exclusively, right? We have a lot of mining and other industries that pay into that, but those dollars will go back into figuring out ways to um, basically spur technologies to treat water and put it to a valuable use for New Mexico, which would mean we're using it for industrial applications that don't discharge, and in doing so, protecting fresh water. So I want to always come back to the fact that you have the environment secretary here, not the economic development secretary, and, you know, preserving fresh water. I I spend much of my time working with counties who declare emergencies because they don't have drinking water anymore or getting water, you know, that is uh, source water protection for like Las Vegas to make sure residents there have water. So this is a constant and Eric is right. I am constantly thinking about the future and the future needs to be, you know, part of the plan, not just responding to it, but actually being proactive about it. Um, But with your question about Senate Finance Committee, I think, you know, we are taking this to legislators, explaining what the goals are and the objectives are Uh, I think there's a lot of unspent capital in the state of New Mexico already, and they don't want to contribute to that. Um, And they are certainly looking for ways to invest in New Mexico's future without sort of um, having recurring money. So I think as we continue to educate the legislature, I, you know, I I want to say Senator Diamond, uh, um, Brantley Diamond, 
uh, Diamond Brantley, and others seem to get it during the Senate Finance Committee. And I think there's some interest in pursuing this. Um, and it may it may evolve a little bit, but I think there's definite interest in pursuing this. Um, you know, Secretary Kenny, as I understand that with every barrel of oil, we get anywhere from four to 10 barrels of produced water, and it costs about a dollar per barrel to dispose of it now. This strategic water plan seems to be paying oil companies for what is normally a cost that they incur. So would it actually make this a revenue stream for companies? Yeah, so I think to get um, oil and gas or a uh, sort of secondary company who manages that water to be a first mover here, right, to, to come to the table and invest that infrastructure, um, it's there's the dollar piece that you're talking about, the economic piece, but there's also the long-term commitment that the state would be making to help offset those costs. So in my thinking about this, I don't think the state is going to replace their expense. I think we can offset some of that expense to the point that they become first movers to build that infrastructure and treat the water. Um, I think that's a reality. The other thing that, you know, from 20 plus years of working in environmental regulatory, you know, at the feds and the state now, uh, anytime we can make a waste more of a commodity, and I, I know that word kind of tripped up everybody at Senate Finance the other day, but anytime we can put value on something, be it a chemical or a, uh, you know, in this case, water, then it will be managed better. And the worst thing that can happen with produced water because it's salt water is, and, and other things, I don't mean to diminish it that way, but the worst thing that can happen is when you mismanage produced water, um, you create a moonscape where you spill it or, or release it uh, that, that really can't be cleaned up very well. It's millions of dollars to clean that up. Um, and as Jerry pointed out, the state environmental agencies, mine included, lacks the resources to be on top of this every single day. So more regulatory um, oversight is absolutely needed. And at the same time, we have to find ways with the current oil and gas industry that we have. And if the lights flipped off and they closed down today, we'd still have 20 to 30 years of these wells producing this salt water. So we have this problem even after we continue to make this decarbonation uh, switch to other forms of energy. Um, uh so, yeah. As Jerry brought up, you did and you did mention your budget, Secretary Kenny. Uh, what's it looking like this session? You've been very vocal in past sessions that you need more money to carry out your regulatory duties. Yeah, I'm glad you heard me. Um, and I hope <laughs> New Mexicans hear me. Uh, you know, we we are uh, we have so we have 500 plus um, career employees at the Environment Department and they are underpaid and overworked. And I would love for the legislature to rise to the occasion and, and fund our employees based upon their education and career experience. I'm not, we're not asking to be paid like Google. We're asking to be paid like the civil servants who do the job that we do. And, you know, when we got the Climate Bureau in a, in a session or two ago, we asked for, you know, a couple million dollars to pay for employees. We got a basically half of that money um, and have hired five people instead of, you know, 15 people. Um, so, yeah, I'm hopeful that the legislature will fund the environment department in a way that we can succeed in our mission in all parts of the state and not 
sort of have to make the hard choice that there's a fire, you know, in northern New Mexico. So everything in the south is sort of on the back burner. That That's not fair to New Mexicans. Well, Secretary Kenny, I know you have to leave. So I appreciate you joining us this morning to talk about these issues. Yeah, thank you for having me. And um, thank you to the panelists. I uh, look forward to continuing the conversation in the next however many days we have left in the session. Thanks a lot. Um, also joining us this morning is uh, Jason Sandell. He is on the board of the New Mexico Oil and Gas Association, and he runs the Aztec Well family of companies. I was going to try and get to you while we still had Secretary Kenny, Jason, but I was curious about your thoughts on the strategic water supply proposal as someone who's in the industry. Sure, I appreciate it, Megan. And, and at the onset of, uh, of my comments, I just I think it's really important for us to point out that oftentimes it's the men and women of the energy industry who take time away from their families, answer every beck and call and risk life and limb such that people across the world can drive their cars, heat their houses and turn on their lights. For every lease explored, every well drilled and every barrel or cubic foot produced, there's a roustabout, a truck driver and a floor hand who made it happen. And I just wanna take a quick moment at the beginning of this interview and say thank you to those people uh, it's it, the work that they do is critical, um, not only for our communities, our state and our nation, but also for the entire world. Um, to your question about the strategic water reserve, I, I actually uh, commend the governor and Secretary Kenny in being uh, innovative in uh, bringing forth proposals in how it is that we can protect our fresh water across the state and to uh, look for opportunities and use for reuse of um, produced water and brackish water that come from our saline aquifers. So from my perspective, more power to them. I think that they're doing uh, excellent work in protecting the environment and I'm very supportive of their efforts. What about uh, the criticisms um, that this is public money to clean up water that was polluted by private <clears throat> industry? Well, I don't know that produced water is water that has been polluted by Well, it's a industry. byproduct of drilling for oil, right? Well, it's also a byproduct of drilling for geothermal. Anytime you dig a hole in the earth, uh, there is uh, produced water that has the potential of coming to the surface. And there's strong support for geothermal wells, for instance. And so this is an opportunity for us to be able to clean up that produced water and use it um, in a beneficial way that would that would assist the state of New Mexico, as the secretary pointed out in encouraging uh, energy uh, transition. So I, I think it's a good idea. Eric just had a quick note. The strategic water reserve is distinct from the strategic water supply initiative. Thank you for that clarification, Eric. What can you uh, explain just a little bit? Yeah, so the Strategic Water Reserve is a distinct entity. It's a, it's a function of the Office of State Engineer. My understanding, I am not an expert on this, that, that, that issue in particular. What we're talking about today is the strategic water supply, so a little bit confusing on the terminology. And this is where the money would flow towards 
oil and gas producers to reclaim produced water. One thing I'll push back on quickly, you know, distinction between fracking for oil and gas and geothermal is that with fracking, you're using a fracking cocktail going into the ground that does have a variety of pollutants and other chemicals in it. Oftentimes, it's really difficult to know what's in there because those fracking cocktails are proprietary business information and there's not good disclosure on that front. So there are some fundamental distinctions between geothermal, geothermal and oil and gas. Okay, as I mentioned earlier, the bill updating the Oil and Gas Act is being heard now in the House Energy Environmental Environment and Natural Resource Co- Committee. Excuse me. So that's why we don't have anyone here in person from the main regulatory agency, the Energy, Minerals, and Natural Resources Department. But we have a recorded interview with Dylan Fuge. He's the Assistant Secretary of MNERD and Acting Director of the Oil Conservation District. The division convened a working group last year of people from industry and environmental organizations to propose updates to the Oil and Gas Act. I asked him what key things would change under a revamped act. One is cleaning up orphan wells. He said the state is $295 million short of what it needs to clean up known orphan wells. HB 133, the Oil and Gas Act, would increase bonding fees, and he explains what those are. When someone develops an oil well, if they've got active wells, they need to put up a bond. Currently, the largest blanket bond I can require is $250,000. So once you hit 100 wells, you only have to put up a $250,000 bond. So the bond is supposed to offset plugging costs. Average well to plug, particularly an orphan well, is about $125,000. So a $250,000 bond only covers two wells. A million-dollar bond doesn't even cover quite 10. You can see the mismatch. And so that's why financial assurance is a prominent feature of this reform effort. In sort of a related vein, right now, OCD only has limited authorities to sort of ask questions when it comes to the transfer of an oil and gas well. An oil and gas well often changes hands a number of times through its life. Current law only allows us to ask basic questions. Can you provide the bonds? And are you otherwise in compliance with real general OCD rules? We'd like to amend the act to give us some more authority to look at transfers and at least be able to question when we have concerns about the financial capacity of an operator to take on these liabilities. The final financial elements of the wells are our fees were set in 2019. Um, They were set at the lowest levels nationally. We're proposing to increase the fees. The fees we collect go into a fee fund that help offset OCD's operational costs. So we're also proposing to tweak what we can use those for. And then the final element, um, civil penalties. When our authority was reinstated in 2019, the aggregate penalty we could assess was capped at $200,000 for any violation, which meant Effectively, if we were policing a recurring violation, like routine venting and flaring under our waste rule, once the meter had run past about 80 days, we couldn't assess any additional penalties, which we feel potentially created a perverse incentive um, once non-compliance reached a certain point. We felt like it was critically important, especially with the rapid growth we've seen uh, in Permian production and sort of the sustained high oil prices, that we at least have a penalty structure that mirrors other environmental statutes in New Mexico to provide an appropriate deterrent or at least appropriate insurance for compliance. And I think as your listeners probably know, when the bill was originally introduced, it had setbacks. How far a well had to be set back from schools and other places? 
yes, we will be discussing uh, later today a committee substitute that removes setbacks from the bill because we did not feel there was support and additional work was needed to kind of lock in the mechanics of the setbacks question. It is a exceedingly challenged and nuanced questions about how those are implemented on the ground, what are appropriate exceptions, and even, you know, frankly, what are appropriate distances. And it was clear we weren't quite there. And then the last piece, obviously, um, one of the key legacies of this administration was the nation-leading waste rule. We're looking to codify not all the text of the rule and all the pages, but the end result of the rule, which is the 98% uh, gas capture target. As the acting director of the Oil Conservation Division, you, you helped bring together this working group of industry and environmental groups to update this act. And a lot of these things everyone agreed to. Why is there pushback now? I think setbacks was always going to be the trickiest one. I mean, the Oil and Gas Act obviously regulates a significant industry to the state of New Mexico and regulates a technically complex industry that has a significant footprint and, you know, sort of significant potential risks. So it's never easy. You know, new oil and gas facilities tend to be built to the best standards with the best equipment. So individually, their lower admission. And so some of their impacts are less. And I think from industry's perspective, that certainly justifies sort of shorter setback distances. And then there were questions about how to grandfather in existing facilities, because I think we at the OCD were sensitive to allowing for a proliferation of facilities. But in recognizing that we didn't want a proliferation of new facilities, we had to kind of uh, accept some existing operations. I just don't think we got close enough on those challenging questions in terms of numbers, exceptions, and other pieces. Was there also a component, is that still in there, related to limiting or prohibiting the use of freshwater? That was an element that was part of discussion. It did not make it into the pre-filed bill. Our biggest challenge there was folks understandably wanted sort of statewide standards, but technically the judgment of myself and my team was that we could not do statewide standards because the drilling activity in New Mexico is heavily slated towards the Permian Basin. And so when you have drilling activity, you've got produced water, so you have opportunities to put it in, treat it, move it around and go. There is not a mirror image of that in the San Juan Basin. And we didn't want that, I think, misperception of disparate treatment to distract from the other reforms we were attempting to implement in the bill. That was Dylan Fuge, Assistant Secretary of the Energy, Minerals and Natural Resources Department, who as is at the hearing taking place right now on the bill. Jerry Redfern with Capital in Maine, he talked about the need for increased bonding capacity. You wrote a story about a settlement the state reached with the Texas company to plug nearly 300 wells. How does this illustrate what Assistant Secretary Fuge was talking about? Um, yeah, so the company is called Ridgeway, Arizona, and it Well, neither has ridges, nor is it in Arizona, but that's kind of beside the point. But the state is going to plug 299 of the company's non-producing wells, wells that haven't produced often in decades. Um, I I took a picture of one that hadn't produced since like 1982. They have a whole bunch like that. Um, So the state's going to pay for that plugging operation. It's going to cost probably more than $30 million, and that's according to uh, Dylan Fuge's own office. Um, And the company's going to pay pay that back at $30,000 a month um, for as long as they can afford to do that. Um, And that could take up to 83 years. Um, 
so the the problem here is that <laughs> is it, it gets back to that whole bonding issue that he was talking about. The company did have bonds in the amounts that they were required to by state law, but the bonds that they had were only up to about $1.25 million. Plus, you can only call those bonds, you can only get that money if the company goes bankrupt, but the company wasn't bankrupt. So the thought was to let the company continue to produce, um, force them to pay some of that the money that they get from that production to pay down the bonding costs on those wells um, because that was the best option they had at the time. A another part of that, and this gets back to that funding question um, I talked about earlier, is that the Oil Conservation Division doesn't have the money to hire enough lawyers to be able to take a company like this to court to get them to pay up in full because Ridgeway, Arizona is actually a subsidy of a much larger company that does actually have a great deal more money. Um, it happens to be run by a one-time Russian oil tycoon, no less. Um, so th there is money there, um, but to get that to happen, you'd have to have your own army of lawyers to be able to go after that company um, sort of up the corporate chain. So these are the sorts of things that OCD is looking at and hoping to fix. This is Let's Talk New Mexico on KUNM. I'm Megan Kamrick. We're talking about efforts to reform oil and gas laws in the legislative session. We will be right back. The KUNM Radio Board meets virtually the first Tuesday of the month, and you are welcome to attend. Each meeting includes an open mic segment if you'd like to address the board. For details on how to register for the meeting, visit KUNM.org and find Radio Board in the About KUNM tab. That's KUNM.org and find Radio Board in the About KUNM tab. If you've been thinking about donating that old car or truck to KUNM, this is the time to make that call and actually do it. Together, our listeners who donated vehicles paid almost 10% of KUNM's bills. That means so much to us, and it means something to you, too, because that's less fundraising we have to do on air. So please don't put it off any longer. Call 888-KUNM-CAR. We take care of everything from towing to the tax receipt. That's 888-KUNM-CAR, 888-586-6227. Welcome back to Let's Talk New Mexico on KUNM. We're in the middle of the legislative session. There are a number of efforts to reform oil and gas laws on the docket, most notably one being heard now in the House Energy, Environment, and Natural Resources Committee, the Oil and Gas Act. What do you hope to see from lawmakers this session on this issue? You can call us at 505-277-5866. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit in my script. Um, I also spoke with another person who is part of the working group that um, Assistant Secretary Fuge mentioned that brought together industry and environmental groups months ago to hammer out changes to the Oil and Gas Act. Uh, she couldn't be here live because she's at that hearing. <laughs> Kaylee Shoup is with Citizens Caring for the Future in Carlsbad. I asked her what it's like living so close to the oil boom in the Permian Basin. You know, more than anything, it's overwhelming. You know, you're constantly reminded of climate change in a lot of ways because you're driving around and you're seeing flares and, you know, I know methane is coming from those and I know these things are happening. But also you're dealing with a lot of issues that could bring harm to you or your family. And there's really no way to stop it in, in a lot of ways because we have multi-billion dollar corporations 
that are in our community and they're pulling strings within our local community. They're pulling strings on a state level. It's a very much a David and Goliath situation, but I got involved because of seeing what was happening to our air, land and water, but then also seeing people within my community dealing with health impacts and starting to connect the dots that, oh, it's not normal that everyone I know has endocrine issues or something like that, you know, or there's these, I'll hear about people that have reproductive issues and I'll ask, you know, where do you live? And they'll tell me where they live. You know, I know that there's oil and gas sites nearby. And so just kind of connecting those dots. Apparently, the setback provisions have been removed from the Oil and Gas Act. Why are these important? There's peer-reviewed studies that show the closer you live to these sites, the bigger health impacts you are dealing with. And I know the people that are dealing with those health impacts. I live within a half mile of one of these sites. And um, it's crucial that our state is responsible and is proactively protecting the citizens, especially children. You know, I think about the fact that these oil and gas leases are funding, you know, our education system. And these kids are unknowingly sacrificing their health because they have oil and gas sites right next to their school. And they walk away not only with an education, but they walk away with, you know, respiratory issues, a high risk of chronic disease, reproductive issues, sometimes cancer. And it's crucial that we protect them as much as we can. Setbacks obviously are not going to solve the fact that we have high ozone pollution and all of these things, but it really does make a difference when you don't have, you know, VOCs being admitted directly into your home on a daily basis. What other provisions do you want to see stay in the bill? You know, the financial assurances and then the increase in bonding. Orphaned wells and abandoned wells, I think, are really going to be the issue like of my generation in a lot of ways. And we're going to pay for that financially and, you know, with our health. When you see the scope of what's going on in the Permian Basin, how many wells there are, and then you realize that these companies are only required to bond up to 250000 and it's, you know, $100,000 to plug a well. I mean, that is just, it's a sleeping giant of an issue. Because the Southeast is so conservative and we do not send representatives and senators up to Santa Fe that are talking about these concerns. I think because of that, there's this dynamic that the state is, you know, getting all this income from us and we're really not a squeaky will. It allows a lot of disregard for the people that actually live here and um, are dealing with these things on a daily basis. Do people that you talk with counter like, but you're trying to get rid of our jobs, Kaylee? <laughs> um, you know, actually you would be surprised, not necessarily with something like setbacks. I think people here realize that oil and gas sites come with health impacts. No one wants to live next to this. And they know that it's not going to put these companies out of business. Other states, you know, they have these setbacks. This is really a public health measure. This is a people issue. People here understand that. 
That was Kaylee Sheep. Oops, I just lost my notes. <laughs> that was Kaylee Sheep with Citizens Caring for the Future in Carlsbad. She couldn't be here live because she's uh, attending the hearing on the Oil and Gas Act bill that's taking place right now in the House. Um, Jason Sandell with um, the Board of New Mexico Oil and Gas Association, you were part of this working group as well with Kaylee that worked on this update to the Oil and Gas Act, and you work in the industry, your family company. Why are setbacks not possible? Why are they so contentious? To a layperson, it seems like, well, why can't we put these further back? Sure, Megan. <clears throat> Thank you very much for the question. Um, and first, just to be clear, I, I was not part of uh, the working group. Oh, Haley. I apologize. I thought uh, you were. I was. No, 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 no. That's just fine. I, I have been involved in, in a variety of different policy discussions at the state level, including the methane advisory panel. Um, but again, here at the onset, I, I definitely want to commend both um, the the non-governmental organizations as well as uh, Deputy Cabinet Secretary Dylan Fuge and his staff in working toward a collaborative discussion on revisions to the Oil and Gas Act. Um, it, it's been a six month long discussion and in line with um, collaboration and cooperation to uh, put forth some some improvements after reevaluation. Um, most definitely progress and updates are always in order because of innovation and technology in the industry. And so uh, it's been a very healthy discussion and I'm appreciative of that. Specific to setbacks, I mean, as a former city councilor here in the city of Farmington, um, setbacks are governed by zoning laws typically. And so I would encourage Kaylee to go and talk to the Carlsbad City Council and ask for the city council to uh, be pushing forward with with whatever that local zoning regulation and setback um, would be no different than what we have done here in the city of Farmington. Eric, I think I saw a shake of your head. Did you want to say something, Eric, from the Western Environmental Law Center? Yeah, the, you know, the Oil Conservation Division has primary authority over governance and management of oil and gas resources. There are no setbacks in New Mexico to protect public health or the environment. Interestingly, there are setbacks to protect other oil and gas companies, the correlative rights of those companies. So it is expressly within the purview of the Oil Conservation Division to step up and ensure that oil and gas operators are good neighbors to New Mexico. We know, and, and Kaylee mentioned this, that there is extensive peer-reviewed information that the closer you are to an oil and gas well, the more likely you are to suffer serious health, backs, health impacts. And there are thousands of kids elderly people and vulnerable people who are within half of a mile of an oil and gas well. So this is a very reasonable step forward to ask of the oil and gas industry to be a good neighbor to New Mexicans. That is all that's being asked here. It's a sensible step. And insofar as industry was part of the working group, Let's be really real here about what has been going on. Industry did sit down at the table, including in the New Mexico Oil and Gas Association. But in the past 10 days, they have worked in the shadows of the legislature to really eviscerate and undercut this bill and the hard work that the state and Deputy Secretary Dylan Fuge have done to put forward a sensible first step. So I think it's a problem in terms of the surface level rhetoric coming from the oil and gas industry and then the actions behind the scenes in the legislature 
in the shadows that really are undercutting the notion that oil and gas industry should be a good neighbor. They say they're a good neighbor, but let's be real. I don't think they are. Uh, well, I guess my uh, I you know, will go Megan, to Jason I, I, for I that. Can't, I can't <laughs> okay. just Megan. I can't just let that sit. Um, yeah, I was going to you know, ask you in, for your reaction. Jason. Overt. <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, you know, an overt attack on uh, an industry which contributes so much to our communities and to our state. And and by no means has there been any sort of backroom dealings. It's most definitely been very transparent and in line with the discussions that have been uh, part of this entire process since June or July of 2023. And so uh, I appreciate Eric's um, desire to try and demonize uh, people and an industry. But at the end of the day, um, our our turn, tune, uh, the industry's tune has not changed on any of these issues. Well, OK, I, I guess, um, Jerry, you referenced a source, New Mexico story, and I will link to that on the web post for this uh, show. And I have all your articles on there, too, and some other resources. Um, this was one of the things hammered out in this working group. It was setbacks. Fresh water was there. I guess I'm just curious what happened. You know, I, I can't say exactly. I wasn't um, in those those meetings. You the, weren't in the room where it happened. Exactly. <laughs> and um, I think that was a key part of getting the initial bill together was to try to this is the thinking, at least, of the governor's office. And to point out again, this is this is initially uh, this is an initiative of the governor's office, and they brought together people from industry and people from the environmental groups, conservation groups, and others um, to try to figure out things that they could all agree on. And that was, I think, the initial bill that was put forward that was pre-filed with the legislature. Um, and the point being that they did this, I wouldn't say clandestinely, but they tried to do it in a way um, without making a whole lot of noise about it so that everybody felt somewhat comfortable bringing up difficult ideas in the room. So I think this is why it's become somewhat surprising down the line that there's been this rather large shift that's knocked some big pieces of that oil and gas act change um, out of the bill. And I, I know that um, <laughs> both Jason and Eric are, are arguing that, uh, you know, oil and gas is um, doing this and representatives are doing that. Um, it's pretty clear from every legislator, every legislator I've talked to this session that, yes, um, they have been hearing from oil and gas uh, lobbyists, not um, including Namoga, um, asking them to think seriously about whether or not they want to support this bill. It's not um, that, that that is happening. There's, there's no real question about that. That, that's what they, but to be clear, that's mm -hmm. also what they do. That's why you have lobbyists is to, you know, promote to promote your particular industry or your ideas or your hopes. And we saw, you know, at the and, uh, and to, go go ahead, Jerry. Jason. Wouldn't wouldn't the yeah? I mean, wouldn't it be fair to say that NGOs are also lobbying? No, oh, it's yeah. not just a one sided. Okay, absolutely. Thank you for that. What, Eric? Of course not. But let me also point out that the bill as originally introduced was fundamentally changed with the substitute. And we do support the substitute bill. But the changes to this in the substitute, in particular dealing with setbacks, didn't just happily uh, ma magically happen out of thin air. That was precisely because of lobbying, including from the New Mexico Oil and Gas Association. And Namoga does not support this bill, period. Uh Eric, you said you do support HB 133, even though these things have been stripped out. 
why are you still supporting it? Yeah, you know, it is still a good step forward for New Mexico. And I think it has started an important conversation about how we properly balance oil and gas production independency in New Mexico with protection of people and the environment. I think it's also a really important conversation in terms of the state's dependency on revenue, which was the basis of my points about protecting the severance tax permanent fund. You know, we are very much in a transition period here in New Mexico. And the key here is not to entrench us further in dependency on oil and gas, but is to have a good, thoughtful transition away from oil and gas and a diversified economy. Yes, oil and gas produces quite a bit of revenue for the state, but the state is also 50th in education and often in the bottom 10 of pretty much every metric that a state has. This is a this is a resource curse uh, in many respects, even though that money is in fact flowing to the state. And I also just want to respond to Jason that, you know, we very much respect the, the, the workers in the oil and gas fields, and this is who we want to support with a good, effective transition. My concerns of the folks operating in the shadow are the lobbyists themselves from the oil and gas industry who are often beholden to billionaire CEOs outside of New Mexico, including in Texas. So that is my concern here in terms of how the oil and gas industry shows up. And Jason, um, I know you are. Megan, if I if I could jump on that, yeah, just sure. Again, I, I find it I find it real interesting that it's really all about big oil um, when you know one of the proposals that's being pushed forward, and I think we'll even hear about it this morning, uh, was House Bill Thirty One, where it seeks to hold every person, not a company, but a person, including the worker including a frontline employee holding that person accountable to any spill of any amount onto the ground with a $2,000 fine. So these are the proposals that are coming after the workers and after the people who continue to dedicate their lives to ensuring that we're able to turn on our lights and drive our cars. So I, I don't buy that this is all about uh, attacking big oil. Um, Eric, uh, is that true or are the fines targeting large operators? Do they also go all the way down to the workers and small companies? They target the corporate entities. So when the Oil Conservation Division is imposing a violation for breaking the law, they target the operators. They don't target the workers. That's ridiculous. Well, we will follow that bill as well as we do with the rest of the legislature. We are almost at the end of our time here. Well, I, I no. read. Go ahead. I, I read from I read from the amendment. Uh, a person found in violation of this section shall be liable for a civil penalty up to $2,000 for the release uh, of anything less than five barrels. So, I mean, the language that's in black and white certainly seems to be coming after people. And that's HB 31. Okay. That is HB 31 and the amendment that's going to be offered to Oil and Gas Act. Okay. Um, I There is so much more that we could talk about <laughs> this morning. Clearly, I hope we've given you an idea of how very complicated this is, and I hope you will keep following our coverage, our media partners' coverage, like Jerry Redfern. I've put resources on the webpage for the show at KUNM.org. You can also listen to the show again there. 
Um, that is all the time we have today. Thank you to all of my guests, Jerry Redfern, Secretary, Environment Secretary James Kenney, Assistant Secretary of the Energy, Minerals, and Natural Resources Department Dylan Fuge, Kaylee Shoup with Citizens Concerned for the Future, Eric Schlenker-Goodrich with the Western Environmental Law Center, and Jason Sandell. He's on the board of the New Mexico Oil and Gas Association and runs the firm Aztec Well Services. Thank you all so much for engaging in this, doing it respectfully. That is always our goal here on Let's Talk New Mexico to help people understand what's going on better and to get away from the divisiveness and name calling. Be sure to follow us on Facebook at KUNM Radio and Instagram at KUNM News. You can find this audio at KUNM or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to our engineer, Marino Spencer, Mia Casas took your calls, and Cave Movahead produced the show. I'm Megan Kamrick. Thanks for listening to Let's Talk New Mexico.